Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be discussing an essay that helps us approach Homer's poems, as well as the genre of epic in general. We will discuss Louise Cowan's essay, Epic as Cosmopoesis, or to speak very loosely, Epic as World Creation. I know a few students of Cowan, and they have taught me a great deal. I even met Cowan once near the end of her life. She talked of nothing except for Faulkner and Homer. I owe her and her students a debt of gratitude for being able to study old books seriously in a world that constantly tells us not to. That does not mean, of course, that anyone that I have in mind endorses Montana Classical College, etc., etc. Now, allow me to quote briefly from an obituary of Cowan, of course, that will be linked to the substack. Quote, Louise Cowan and political philosopher Wilmore Kendall founded the University of Dallas's Institute of Philosophic Studies, a unique combination of doctoral programs and disciplines centered on the study of core texts, and she directed its growth. The dual focus of Dr. Cowan's life on building the good city and educating to the fullest all the members of that city was expressed in her founding along with her husband and four other intellectual leaders, the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture in 1980, to bring the life of the mind into dialogue with the city of Dallas. She then conceived of and initiated the Teachers Academy of the Institute, or at the Institute in 1983, a program for Dallas public school teachers that from 1984 to 1987 was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities which cited it as a model for the nation. In July 2015, the Teachers Academy, which is now part of the larger Cowan Center for Education, conducted its 32nd consecutive Summer Institute for Teachers. End quote. Now that institute, the one for public school teachers, um, is in full swing. And if you are a teacher looking for a serious summer program in great books to continue your education, whether you have an undergraduate degree a master's or a PhD. I don't think any of that really matters. Um, if you're a serious person, I think that you will um, gain quite a bit from going to that program. And I can guarantee that you will still find two premier teachers there uh, teaching today. Now, let's turn to Cowan's essay, Epic is Cosmopoesis, a copy of which you will find linked on the Substack. A few pages into her essay, Cowan notes an obstacle to understanding what an epic poem is. She notes that the romantics had attacked the very concept of genre, a judgment that extends into the present. We might loosely call romanticism a deeply felt longing for a beautiful past that probably never was. Romanticism flows out of a deep disappointment with the present with a sense that the conventions and categories that govern our lives are artificial or fake, that conventions claim more authority than they deserve, and so a longing to destroy them and so unbind ourselves from them in order to return to a more majestic and more natural past. Thus, to the romantic, the idea of genre, that a writer should follow the conventions of tragedy, comedy, epic, or lyric, and by the way, Louise Cowan has edited volumes that talk about all four of those categories, epic, comedy, uh, tragedy, and lyric. Um, all of those essays are worth reading, and in a way, I hope to cover all of them, but 
obviously recovering epic right now. But again, to the romantic, the idea that you have to follow the rules or the so-called rules of a genre feels stifling. But just because these conventions feel constraining, it does not follow that there is nothing to the idea of genre or even of many conventions. One can easily imagine how, even if most romantics would be unimpressed with deconstruction or postmodernism, that the romantic critique of convention prepares the way for deconstruction, or in other words, that Derrida owes a debt to Rousseau. And I know that statement massively over oversimplifies both thinkers. Thus, in the face of romanticism and deconstruction, Louise Cowan boldly claims that the genre of epic is a natural category existing independently of the human will. Epic was a human potentiality from the beginning, but it is only first realized at a specific point in time through Homer's great accomplishment. Though Cowan is a great admirer of Aristotle's poetics, she credits Aristotle's unequal distribution of attention to it taking much more time for the essence of epic to be more fully understood. Because Aristotle praised tragedy over epic, more work has been done describing its philosophical significance. Where epic was considered, people tended to emphasize the external structure of the Aeneid, rather than the dispositional core of epic, which we will talk about soon, to create tepid lists of rules that define epic. The epic poet, the epic poet must, according to this uh, uh, list of rules, must invoke the muse, state the theme of the poem, devise a sequence of questions and answers, begin in the middle of things, and media res, divide the work into 12, 24, or 30, 36 books, etc. Now, with this sort of brief history of the reception of the epic in mind, we turn to Cowan's observations of common features that unite epic as a genre or category or as a natural kind. Um, one of her observations, epic usually shows a time of defeat, and it comes from need, not from plenitude. Now, we also often associate epic with something grand, or with actions that we would all immediately agree or see are important. But as Cowan suggests, it is the gods who imbue action with significance. They're not significant on their own. She also suggests that art belongs to a genre or kind, each of which has its own mode of seeing. So tragedy, comedy, lyric, and epic all have their own mode of seeing, according to Callan. Um, and to return to the earlier statement, epic is more of an inner disposition than an external structure. Thus, many disparate works can participate in the genre, so, for instance, Cowan would argue that both the Bible and Moby Dick participate in the category of epic. We'll say a little bit more about that later. But nevertheless, if you turn to the um, dispositional inner core, you will get closer to the essence of epic, or that that is the essence of epic, rather than the list of rules that we mentioned earlier. Of course, many epics do use some of those rules, but as Cowan suggests, the, this is not the essence of epic. It's something different than that. And so what is it? As she says, it is a world, and its terrain should help and not hinder our interpretation. So you might think that 
well, this work is a tragedy. Well, that this, this writer is not going to be able to express the truth of things because they're beholden to certain conventions. But it might be the case that such a great writer would be able to, even under the constraints of the conventions, say very unconventional truths. Um, and so the terrain might help us see what they have in mind even or especially if they subvert some of the terrain or change it, um, but that the terrain can help us rather than hinder us. Um, now, Epic shows us a full, as, as uh, Cowan says, Epic shows us a full and complete cosmos displaying at a panoramic scale an entire way of life. That way of life is caught in a moment of radical change, yet transfigured and preserved. The immortality of a people comes at the cost of a hero. Societies and poets must be ready for heroic sacrifice. And so the poet sees his society as standing between two worlds, a moment of death and a moment of birth, a moment of elegy and a moment of prophecy. In contradistinction to epic, we might say that the so-called historical novel arose as consciousness of being historically conditioned became a mass experience for human beings. Now, Cowan suggests that the historical novel is a kind of horizontal account of human beings. In other words, that it is only human beings versus nature. But she suggests that epic is not merely horizontal, but also vertical, which is to say, that there is a divine purpose. The epic poet listens to the gods and gives his society its identity and its mission. So, what does the phrase epic is cosmopoesis really mean then? It is the making of a cosmos wherein the other genres find their place and within which human life may be envisioned in its various dimensions. Now, to say that the other genres find their place within the cosmos of epic is to say something like, um, presumably, well, I don't cling to these categorizations of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but one could conceivably say that the Iliad appears to be more tragic in a sense, and that the Odyssey appears to be more comic. Now, again, that's obviously an oversimplification. But if we're looking at things from a bird's eye view, it seems like those categories might obtain within those two different epic poems. So, a epic poem might be tragic, or it might be comic, or it might be neither. But nevertheless, the other genres can find their place within the cosmos of the epic. Now, uh, Cowan says that a cosmos is a self-enclosed state of order, which must be intuited. Um, so it's some kind of feeling. It's not as if you're searching for it, but you somehow sense that it's the case, and you try to give that sense or feeling and articulation, but it's not your somehow rational mind that seeks out and finds the epic, but rather a feeling, which then maybe perhaps you can kind of try to articulate. And certainly the epic cosmos, a poetic image, as Cowan suggests, cannot be logically encompassed or defined, nor can all of its components be neatly listed, right? We can't make a rule, or sorry, a list of rules um, that you have to follow if you'd like to be an epic poet. It's not that easy, right? You have to commune with the divine. Nevertheless, despite the difficulty of categorizing epic, or at least of making a neat list of rules that captures its inner core or disposition, 
Cowan proposes for our consideration four broad elements of epic that we ought to understand. First, she says, it penetrates the veil separating material and immaterial existence. It is a metaphysical extension of space. Second, she says it is an eschatological expansion of time. Third, it is the restoration of equilibrium between masculine and feminine forces. Fourth, it is a motion of human action guided toward a divine destiny. We're going to take up each of those four um, elements of epic now. I just wanted to list them ahead of time, but um, those are all very complicated sentences, so we'll kind of take them up one at a time. So the next four parts of her essay are devoted to elaborating on these elements, which I've just or mentioned. So let's take up each of them in turn. So first, to restate the first element in different words, the first element of epic that Cowan proposes to explore is the vertical account of things, or the link between humans and the divine. She begins by insisting that calling on the calling on the muses is not a convention. It is a genuine cry by a poet who intuits the possibility of their stories, but who simultaneously apprehends that it is impossible to tell them alone or without divine assistance. In no other genre are the poets so closely associated with the source of their inspiration. More recently written, or modern epics, are influenced by the modern worldview, or have to accommodate their vision to an audience under the sway of the modern worldview. Thus, in a book like Moby Dick, Melville displays the divine order through signs in nature, a thought or concern that immediately lighted up when I read this claim was to wonder if the modern worldview takes us farther away from the possibility of epic. I'll expand more on modern obstacles in the close of the lecture, um, when Cowan appears to lay out uh, which philosopher she appears most indebted to at the end of the essay. Um, so the second element of epic is the comprehension of metaphysical time. Epic is in an important sense impersonal, inasmuch as it has a detached and godlike view of time. It sees things from the perspective of eternity. The poet is aware of an entire poetic tradition preceding him to which they are accountable, a realm of undying fame or kleos, and a permanent repository of values. Kleos is a vision of things from a transcendent perspective. It is revealed to mortals through a break in time that impels heroes to strive for what she calls the absolute moment. Epic envisions a movement towards a fullness as the goal of history, as she says. The third element of epic, the masculine-feminine conjunction. I admit that I found this section somewhat difficult to follow. I think that the theme is of high interest, that is, thinking about the masculine and feminine in a sort of primordial way, the way that, say, someone like Camille Paglia does. And indeed, in this section, Cowan laudably sets aside contemporary political platitudes about feminism, and she seeks to show the reader the feminine and the masculine as they are, and thus as distinct entities with their own attendant virtues and vices. And so 
Well, I think there is an exciting interpretive pathway that Callan points to. Either she isn't sufficiently clear in bringing out what is at stake, or what is more likely, I haven't yet paid sufficient attention to this section in order to properly understand it. Um, as I say, like, there's a way in which Cowan brings out many, many, many examples of extraordinary female goddesses or female characters within different epics from across cultures and times, and the incredible contribution those women or like females make to the epic. But I don't fully understand the import uh, at a theoretical level of what these particular interesting women, how it is that they allow for or realize a kind of equilibrium with the masculine or exactly how that works. So um, I had, like I said, I had a hard time following it, so I won't belabor the point, but let's turn to just two quick points that um, did make sense to me. Um, Cowan says that nations are twice or even thrice born. As she proposes, the Iliad and the Odyssey stand at the midpoint between the warrior code and the coming of the polis. So in that sense, you could say the warrior code somehow dies and then the polis comes to be. And then we have to ask how much of the warrior code was transmitted to the polis or something along those lines. Um, so this generative capacity of epic that points from one time to another time seems to suggests some kind of reconciliation between the feminine and the masculine such that something generative was possible. And as Cowan says, although it is masculine prowess and thumos that undertakes the heroic task, it is with the help of feminine wisdom and courage that it is accomplished. And Epic portrays marriage as a powerful institution. Now exactly what to say about that mm, that institution and exactly how it plays a role, for instance, in the Iliad, since that's the poem that we're most interested in studying right now, is hard to say. Um, I'll provide a link on the substack to a highly interesting lecture by a very helpful or intelligent person who, who talks a lot about Book 14 of the Iliad and ways in which Hera's attempts to thwart Zeus's will is, to some extent, something that brings about a kind, if, if not a full reconciliation, at least a partial reconciliation between Hera and Zeus, that Zeus only discloses his plan in full, in its fullness to Hera after she does her best to thwart his will um, by putting him to sleep and unleashing Poseidon. There's a lot to say about that, but I, I will link to the lecturer who will say this, these things much more uh, helpfully than myself. Okay, now turning to the fourth and final sort of broad element of epic, the movement of the human race toward a divine destiny. And again, that's not just a particular people, but as Cowan says, the entire human race toward a divine destiny. Um, the epic is less concerned with the actions of the hero than with the total action of the poem. Um, it's the Iliad, not the Achilleid, you could say. The epic cosmos is a driving is a force driving people forward. Striving is the core characteristic of epic, just as suffering is the core of tragedy. The epic is an intuition of motion within the body of mankind that strives to overcome the existing codes and conventions toward the fulfillment 
of a destiny to which a people are called. It is customary to say that Homer invented the epic, but it is better to say that he discovered it. It is a permanent possibility for man, or a potential available at the beginning, that, uh, that is not until it is given poetic expression. A, a different version of this kind of argument, I remember saying to Mrs. MCC uh, early when I knew her, that I said something like this, like, Homer is way ahead of his time. And then I was embarrassed by the formulation that was offered in uh, to refute this, which was to say that Mrs. MCC said, no, Homer is able to understand that which is distinctively human, which is to say it doesn't really matter uh, that Homer's, like to say that Homer's ahead of his time was a way of saying that I was already beholden to a kind of progressive version of history. Whereas to say that Homer knows what is distinctively human is to say that what is distinctively human or excellent about human beings is something available maybe in all times and places, but which is not always actualized. So these two different ways of putting it, one is progressive and one is natural, one could say. Um, okay, so Louise Cowan then brings out in a concise but pretty, um, pretty astounding formulation. She says, the Bible is epic. Um, that the Bible itself, maybe in different parts of itself, and maybe as a whole, is a kind of epic poem unto itself. And it shows the moving forward, the striving, and the picture of one way of life of a nation changing into another while preserving much of the past, as it shows a covenant that forms a nation, and then shows how that covenant with one people is eventually universalized through Christianity. So you have a, a people at a point of change um, becoming another people or preserving some of what came before and moving forward, striving and changing. Um, and to continue, to continue this theme that Cowan puts out for us, she says, Epics teach us about the inexorable lesson of change. Epic shows us again and again the pattern of moving from the old myth to a new one. And she says, carrying everything of value with it as it goes. And I ask, can it carry everything of value from one age to the next? Isn't this a view of history that is necessarily progressive? Um, you could put it like this, and maybe this is not how Callan would put it, but it seems to me that this formulation points to seeing epics as the vehicle that would preserve the best of an old way and carry that over to the new way. Now, once eventually that new way itself falls apart, Epic would preserve the older way on one hand, it would also preserve the way that came after that, and carry the best of both into a new third way. In this way, there's only a carrying forward of what is good, and a sloughing away of what is bad. And, as Cowan suggests, if this view is true, then there is no reason to grieve. You're watching divine providence bring about something that's better, something that's more truly good. And as Cowan suggests, and uh, well, I'll, I'll just say what she suggests, at the end of history, all shall be made one. And it seems, I'm sure you could already kind of hear this through some of what we've talked about, but it seems to me that this is Hegelian or a Hegelian version of Christianity or 
we could say that Cowan does not fully clarify all that is presupposed in what she says, or rather, I have not read the essay sufficiently closely. But this all sounds Hegelian in a way. Or maybe if we want to use the language of genre to use Cowan's own language, and in that way, try to understand her better as she understands herself, I wonder this. Does Cowan subordinate the epic to the comic through this essay? As one critic has described the deepest sense of comedy in an almost trite formulation, comedy begins in trouble and ends in peace. So the beginning of history is rough. It's rough for a while, but it always gets better. And then eventually somehow it ends in peace, whether that's God bringing that about or history. And it seems like Cowan moves back and forth between history and God um, throughout the essay. I don't know which one is more primary for her or not. But nevertheless, you could say that Cowan thinks the history heads in this kind of comic direction, at least according to this epic essay. Now, I hope to cover, cover her essay on comedy in a future session to try to test this thesis. Is comedy primary for Cowan or not? Because she seemed to suggest that epic was more foundational than any other genre um, as far as epic, tragedy, comedy, and lyric go. But it seems like epic is at the foundation, but comedy seems to be at the end or at the head of it. I'm not totally sure. But part of my resistance to Cowan's apparently progressive thesis flows out of observations that she herself makes in the essay. And now maybe she would want us to understand those things as intention with one another. So I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that she's simply confused or something like that. If you're a really smart person and things are contradictory in an essay, that means that the reader needs to figure out what the intention behind that contradiction is. And I'm open to the possibility that Cowan is a writer of that caliber. So nevertheless, let me mention the observations that she makes that might make us resist the comic interpretation of epic or the comic interpretation of history as something that begins in trouble and ends in peace. Namely that she points out a people and a poet must be ready for self-sacrifice in order to make epic possible. But don't we find ourselves in a very soft time when the charms of comfortable self-preservation dominate many men's souls? And Cowan suggested that the modern mind, as she talked about Moby Dick, has to experience the divine order of the cosmos through nature rather than through a more direct encounter with the divine. Has modernity really carried with it, in a living way, all that epic hopes to preserve? That is, the aristocratic morality of Homer's heroes seems to me to be almost unthinkable to us now. Not to say that we can't understand it, but that it's very hard for a human being to embody and live out now. Now, one could object and say, if that was supposed to be one of the, or one could say, was the aristocratic morality of Homer supposed to be one of the parts of Homer that we jettison? Now, Cowan does not at all explicitly suggest that. But if our age is a democratic one, and Homer projects or tells us about an aristocratic morality, um, how much of Homer have we kept? What is it that we preserve of Homer? What were we supposed to keep in our, as she calls it, a poetic repository of values? What is it that we kept that's still alive and not merely still to be recovered or understood. There's a lot to say. This is a very Delphic essay, and it's not very long, 
So in a way, maybe Cowan's essay is more of an invitation, asking provocative essays to help us understand epic poetry, as opposed to giving us a full account of the way that things are. Finally, at any rate, I highly commend this provocative and highly interesting essay to your attention. And while I think even if I am to fully understand this essay someday, which I don't think that I understand it fully yet, even if I fully understand this essay in the future, I suspect that I will still disagree with parts of it. But there is much of it that even now I've learned a great deal from and which informs my own ongoing attempt to understand Homer. So I hope that you read it. And I hope that you enjoyed this sort of overview and with a few comments of Louise Cowan's, Louise Cowan's essay, Epic as Cosmopoesis. Uh, Brian Wilson, out.